Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Thank you, Father, for being with us today, giving us your anointing, your wisdom, giving us ears to hear, eyes to see. Thank you for what you're about to do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're going to continue with uh, Great Shakings, Bring Man-Child Revival, number six. Okay, we're going to call this first one, Man-Child Coming to Pick Up His Bride and Judge the Nations. This was given to Gabby Dibble, one eight twenty two. The very nature of this dream seems like a strong shift was taking place larger than what we would call average. Well, uh, Gabby's name means God is my strength or woman of God. And it represents, I believe, the bride in this dream. I dreamed I was getting out of my car and as I looked up into the sky, I saw an eye and also another part of a face next to each other. Well, I believe it was God's eye and Jesus' face. Uh, Kurt Bryan had a dream of a giant eyeball up in the sky watching everything he did. <laughs> Proverbs 15 and 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch upon the evil and the good. So Gabby said, within seconds, the scene became very clear. The moment I saw the faces forming, I had uh, this deep feeling it was going to be them. <laughs> so as the faces formed, one looked angry while the other was without an expression. The face without expression, and she has in parenthesis, God's face, was slightly above and more towards my right of the other, while the other, and she has Jesus' face, was slightly below and more towards the, my left. So, well, the Lord is um, coming again as a lion, and uh, this time he will judge uh, his church. Isaiah 31 and 4 says, For thus saith the Lord unto me, As the lion and the young lion growleth over his prey, if a multitude of shepherds be called forth against him, will not be dismayed at their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So will the Lord of hosts come down to fight upon Mount Zion and upon the hill thereof. Amen. Amen. So, yes, there's a lot of people who come against what God will do because they don't have understanding. 
I could not tell you what they looked like as the memory has been taken from me, but their faces were in the clouds, and it was in the middle or evening time. The um, or the afternoon or evening time, I should say. The uh, angry face didn't seem to be looking directly towards me, but rather the world. And after I glanced at the faces, it began to get dark outside very quick. I believe the darkness is beginning to cover the earth leading up to the seven-year tribulation. We'll read later of uh, judgments falling upon the earth. I took my mom outside because I wanted to show her what I saw. I said, Mom, Mom, I had an open vision. But as I tried to share it with her, she kept changing the subject before I could tell her. Well, the apostate mother church is what we are born out of. And the apostate leadership and its followers do not have an ear to hear what the Spirit says. When I had taken her outside, the sky looked different. The moon was huge, low, and red, and divided into four equal parts, cut out and spaced a little apart. Hmm. I think we just had a red moon, did we not? I'm not sure. Uh, in, in Joseph's dream, the moon represents his mother, who was a type of the church in Genesis 37, 9-11. God divides the church into four parts in the parable of the sower, where three out of four fell away and only one part bore fruit. So you see God is coming to do this. Jesus is coming to do this. I said something about repentance and that's and that it's time to get right with God. I had the fear of the Lord like never before, but my mom pretty much ignored me. The apostates uh are not uh will not be granted repentance because the Lord must tribulate them first. And some will repent in the first three and a half years of the tribulation and some won't. And she said, I remember my oldest brother, Nathan, was going to come pick me up, and I was going to stay with him. Well, Nathan, the firstborn brother here, means gift from God. And he represents the man-child reformers who are coming for the bride. And Romans 8 and 29 says, For whom he foreknew... He also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And she said, I had a suitcase packed, and as I waited for him, representing being ready to go into the wilderness tribulation behind the man-child. And I was was talking with a man and a woman outside my house. I kept sharing this open vision with them, and I said, Jesus is angry with the people. We have to repent and turn back before it's too late, because he's coming soon. I felt strongly he wasn't happy with the church and the majority of Christians, because 
we weren't fully surrendered and living for Him and with Him. As I was talking, things outside got very interesting. The people became more dangerous. It's as if in the very short time that had passed in this dream, I was aware that the atmosphere had shifted. Well, things and people are becoming increasingly evil at a faster and faster pace now. Isaiah 60 and 2 says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. A car even drove up and hit the guy I had been speaking with, and I was worried he was going to get run over and drug under the wheels of the car, but he was able to walk away. And I think this may represent that God will spare many from calamity who are listening to the bride. They will be granted repentance and be able to walk away from the evil of others who want to drag them down. Amen. People around me seemed more corrupt than ever. I saw a woman who represented my mom, and she wanted to commit adultery against my father. Well, that reminds us of Hosea 2, 2 through 5. Contend with your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. And let her put away her whoredoms from her face and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Yea, upon her children will I have no mercy, for they are children of whoredom, for their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers. I then remembered I was uh, warning Leanna, my sister, about what I had seen. She seemed like she was halfway listening to me. Well, Leanna means uh, gracious and merciful. She represents the little sister in Song of Solomon 8. Uh, 8 through 9, we have a little sister, and she hath no breasts. But shall we do for our sister in the day that she shall be spoken for? If she be a wall, we will build upon her a turret of silver. And if she be a door, we will enclose her with the boards of cedar. She represents the elect of God that will come out of apostasy and follow the man-child and bride into the wilderness tribulation. Uh, God will be gracious and merciful to them and grant them repentance and give them ears to hear. I was telling her that I was pregnant and waiting for Nathan to pick me up. I believe this represents the woman who is pregnant with the man-child and about to give birth in Revelation 12, 1-6. And a great sign was seen in heaven, a woman arrayed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child, 
and she crieth out, travailing in birth and in pain to be delivered. And there was seen another sign in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his head seven diadems. And his tail draweth a third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon standeth before the woman that is about to be delivered, that when she is delivered he may devour her child. And she was delivered of a son, a man-child, who is to rule all the nations. We'll, We'll run into this again in just a little bit here. Very interesting here. Who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and unto his throne. And uh, the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that there they may nourish her a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Amen. As my brother Nathan came in his black car to pick me up, other people from my house blocked off his car in the road because they viewed us as running away. They wanted us to uh, wait with them instead of us leaving. In Psalm eighteen six through 17, we're told, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry uh, before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the mountains quaked and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, a fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. Coming of the Lord, right? And thick darkness was under his feet, and he rode upon a cherub. And did fly, yea, he soared upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his pavilion round about him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness before him his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them, that is, the enemies of God's people. Yea, lightnings manifold and discomfited them. Then um, the channels of water appeared and the foundations of the world were laid bare. And at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils, He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, and he delivered me from my strong enemy, and from them that hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Yes, amen. We know that when David was anointing, he he came against the Edomites, he conquered them, and so on. My mom's car, my sibling's father, and another vehicle, were all around my brother's car as he pulled up to get me. And I remember trying to think of what to do because there was some kind of urgency and I needed to make the right move. 
let me say that these people seemingly resisting this move <laughs> is it reminds us of the family of Joseph as a type of the man child uh, who they were against him at first but ended up bowing down to him as it was with Jesus. Genesis 37, 9 through 11 says, And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren. And he said, Behold, I have dreamed yet a dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? (laughs) Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. Hmm. So we see that the the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars represented that family that was around him. And as we can see, they, they didn't start out <laughs> receiving him. So here's one we received from Anretta Wakira. And we called it Maturity and Sanctification Saves During the Tribulation. This was on 10.23.22. I dreamed that I was in active labor on our bed, and I asked the Lord, Am I pregnant? And he said, The woman is travailing. Hmm. So Anretta here is representing the woman church in this dream. I then walked to the kitchen, and there was a scale. I placed something that was wrapped up, I believe representing her fruit, onto the scale and began to count the numbers. The weight was very low, and I said to myself, that's not enough. I find myself wanting. (laughs) That reminded us of this verse here, Daniel 5, 27. TKL, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Well, we know the Babylonian church's fruit does not yet measure up. It will, but it does not at this time. Then the scene changed, and my husband, Andre, representing the father, our son, who didn't look like our son in real life, representing the maturing man-child, and I were all sitting outside on a beautiful sunny day. We were watching children playing sports in a field. Well, this represents immature Christians who are in competition in their sex and divisions, and the field, of course, is the world. Without any warning, chaos began to erupt. The sun got brighter, and the ground started to break up. Well, we know that earthquakes come with the appearing of the man-child, and Jesus was resurrected at the time of a great earthquake. Uh, Isaiah 64, 1 and 2 says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, and that thou wouldest come down that the mountains might quake at thy presence. 
as when fire kindleth the brushwood, and the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. And she went on to say, people were screaming and running all over the place, and there was a lot of confusion. Yep. So here the Lord comes down at the time of this great confusion. We'll see this again later. I saw my husband, Andre, grabbing our son, <clears throat> representing the man-child being caught up to the throne after his birth. I started to run towards them, but he told me to grab the things and meet him at the top of the hill. I believe this is representing Mount Zion. I wondered how I would know which hill it was was as I turned to gather the things. John fourteen four through six says, "And whither I go, you know the way." Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How knowest we the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. So we have to follow in the footsteps of the Lamb to end up with the Father on the top of Mount Zion. (laughs) The ground with the grass rose up, standing taller than me. Well, we know that the man-child comes with earthquakes, which have both a spiritual and can be a physical property, right? And this is at the beginning of the tribulation. I tried to reach for our things. There was a pair of spectacles, a satchel, and a book. Well, I think the book represents the Word. The spectacles represent the ability to read the Word up close, with clarity in order to climb Mount Zion, right? Then I thought, I better get our medical records too in case we need them. And possibly our medical records represent the blood of Christ and the record of our good confession in heaven that makes us exempt from the curses of the world. Because by His stripes, You were healed. Amen. Then the scene changed again, and I found myself in a chaotic hospital setting. People were shouting different things. Someone was shouting that they were exempt. Hmm. Someone else was crying and screaming, saying, But I have allergies. It appears that the people are begging not to be forcibly vaccinated. They needed an exemption. So it went on she went on to say others were confirmed to the hospital beds confined, excuse me, to the hospital beds crying hysterically. And we thought this possibly could represent medical tyranny and uh, medical martial law imposed on the masses. Yeah, there was a lady who was part of the medical personnel and she was monitoring the people's medical charts 
that the other medical personnel were grabbing. She was going through each chart to allow some pages in the charts, but refusing for any charts to be taken away. She started going through my chart and saying, No, you can't have that. Nope, not that either. And so on. Well, we know that they won't permit the things that actually work in the medical establishment. Mm -hmm. I was getting very impatient because she was very slow and methodical in her sorting. Then I looked down and I saw a piece of paper that didn't belong to me on the ground. It had the heading, Homeschooling, on it. I picked it up and tucked it under the few papers that she had allowed me to take, and I ran out of the hospital. Well, homeschooling represents that we are in the world, but not of it. And we receive our education from the Holy Spirit. Amen. I opened the door to a completely quiet street. It was very dark everywhere. There were people wandering uh, all around. Should have been wandering all around. And there was a dark blue light that glowed everywhere. People were using this blue light to see where they were going. It's possible that this Dark light represents a false enlightenment. People think that they're walking in light and truth, but they are really deceived. And they think it's the heavenly light, but they're really deceived. There were also beasts mingling around the people. They looked like T-Rex dinosaurs and were as tall as a man. Well, we know that there are many members of that body, right? And these individuals are everywhere. And I believe this is representing the mark of the dragon beast authoritarian system. The mark is 666 and the number of man, right? Yes. And these beasts were as tall as a man, representing that they have come into full maturity. I saw them stopping to smell people's arms to either devour them or let them go. Everyone seemed familiar with this and obediently stopped and raised their left arm for a sniff <laughs> and then continued to walk on. Well, in the dream, the mark is detected by the beast. Uh, sniffing the left arm, representing that the rebellious goats will take the mark of the beast in their right hand or foreheads, right? I knew I was different from everyone here. A man wearing a dark blue robe that got lighter in color towards his feet, and I walked to the edge of the pavement in front of me. As he got to the end of the pavement, I felt one of the beast's attention lock onto me before I even saw it. I started to walk quickly towards the man with the blue robe because he had stopped and turned towards me. 
and just before I got to him, the beast caught up with me. My left hand went up, and he sniffed it, and my hand immediately straightened out against my will in between his open jaw. I felt his teeth beginning to crunch uh, onto my hand. The man put his hand in front of mine in the beast's mouth and it stopped biting down. I quickly withdrew my hand and started to walk next to the man as he playfully allowed the beast to keep his hand in its mouth. Well, I do believe that this is Jesus, the man-child. Um, and I believe that he will spare many from being devoured by the beast. In other words, he traded his life in exchange for ours. And if people will believe that and accept that, they will receive his deliverances. In the bushes on the left, I saw a woman watching me intently. She was following us, trying to hide, but I was very aware of her. The beast then left us. This woman who was intently watching the bride and man-child represents the little sister in Song of Solomon 8 and 8. And this is a corporate body of believers who will come out of apostasy to follow the man-child and the bride into sanctification. We turned the corner very quickly with the man leading. He pulled back a curtain and taped on a uh, corrugated door and said urgently, Enter. Tapped, I guess, on a corrugated door and said urgently, Enter. When I entered, I found that it was an outdoor in-ground toilet, and I started to use it, representing getting rid of waste uh, of the old flesh life. The woman that was following stood in front of my door like she was waiting to come in next. And I believe this may represent the little sister will learn about sanctification from the man-child and the bride. And I asked myself, how will I know if it's safe to come out? I felt that it was time to leave, even though I couldn't see what was happening outside. Well, it's um, you're safe outside if you get rid of the waste, <laughs> right? Amen. So this is uh, Claire Pinar's dream, 11-322, and we called it Dream of Outer Darkness. In this dream, Claire represents the bride because of her name. We've used it quite often. means brilliant. And the bride's garments are bright and pure, as is spoken of in Revelation 19 and 8. And it was given unto her that she should array herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, which speaks of obedience to the Lord, right? And um, Rion, her husband, represents the man-child body of reformers, 
as his name means little king. So she said, I dreamed Rion and I were on some kind of spaceship. And this spaceship probably represents traveling in heavenly places in Christ. We were in complete darkness, and it was unbelievably cold. We were traveling towards my real dad and mom's house, uh, the house that I was born in. Well, the first fruits are the first to come out of the apostate mother church's house. We were there in this darkness to fetch one or two specific people. I believe the man, child, and bride will rescue many from the cold darkness of the apostate church. We got to the house, and I saw a boy from my childhood there called Simon Groom. Many of our childhood peers in apostasy have still not grown up because of false doctrines that don't allow for spiritual maturity. He looked homeless and hungry. And, of course, they are starving for the real good news of the gospel because of the true word is not being preached in their apostate churches. And I asked him, do you come here often? He replied, one or two nights a week. <laughs> well, the apostate uh, Christians think you only have to go to church one or two times a week uh, to be okay with God, and the rest of the week they can live the way they want to. Well, as we got out of the spaceship, we had to walk over massive icebergs that were cracking under the pressure of us landing the spaceship there. Well, just remember where they are here, right? <laughs> um the apostate church is founded on frozen doctrines that are cold and unmoving and don't have the life of the living water. And I call them the frozen chosen. <laughs> it was still completely dark. It was intense. And I asked someone to give me a jacket and then a big pink full-length cloak was draped over me instantly. And she has in parenthesis here that the pink cloak represents being covered completely by love. Love covereth a multitude of sins. Yes, it does. Everything was still dark and silent, save for the cracking of the icebergs. I could see the cracks and was concerned and did not want to be there longer than absolutely necessary. Well, when the man, child, and bride arrive on the scene, the foundations of the apostate church will crack up and be destroyed, just as it was in Jesus' day. We were able successfully to retrieve one of the people and come back into the spaceship. And then the dream ended. And we thought about one will be taken and the other left. Hmm. 
And this one was given to Debbie Fenske on 10-15-22. Man, child, and bride protected from a devastating explosion. I dreamed I was in a room with other people who, in the dream, I knew, but not in real life. I knew that they were not there merely for the sake of being together. Everyone was quiet, and there was a sense of anticipation in the room. I looked around and I saw just a few people standing in the room. There was no talking among them. I saw two young men sitting on high stools at a high black counter, and there was a computer by them. They were working on something, like a computer component board. They both were wearing white t-shirts. The guy on the right had a little sharp pointed tool and he was gently poking at different parts on this component board. The guy on the left was gently touching different parts with his finger. Well, I think it's possible that these two men represent angels sent with judgments represented by the high black countertop. They were bringing components together of this world which result in an explosion as we're going to see. And this war is being fought by AI computer of the fifth generation, they say. And the Lord, through His angels, is in control of their artificial intelligence, as I've mentioned before. Yes, their, their power, authority exceeds what man thinks he can do. All of a sudden, there was an explosion that shook the room very hard. This room, I believe, represents the world. I saw some things fly off of shells. The people who were standing around were shaken to the point that some were falling to the floor. They had nothing protecting them from falling. Some were trying to hang on to the things to keep from falling. And this could be representing people trusting in their own strength and worldly things to save themselves. I looked to my right uh, to the opposite side of the room, and I saw a young woman standing against a white wall. She was on the other side of the room, away from the rest of the people who were on the left. She was dressed in blue pants and a blue blouse. And uh, this is the bride dressed in heavenly works, standing on the right. She had nothing to hang on to but the white wall, representing sanctification from the world. She didn't fall, though I watched her being shaken pretty badly to the point of almost falling. She had her hope in sanctification and separation, unlike the others who were trying to stand upright or holding on to whatever they could find, in other words, in their own strength. I was amazed that she kept standing. Okay. 
Then I saw in my spirit a door, and it was closing. I believe this means time is running out to prepare. Then I heard it shut very hard, making a very loud noise. Then there was a a terrible explosion. It was a very deafening and hard explosion. It went on for many seconds. I could not see anything after the explosion, but when it stopped, there was an awful lot of smoke, and I knew that there was total destruction to the room, though I couldn't see anything. Then, though though the explosion was great and very destructive, I saw a door to my right. Well, those on the right uh, represent the sheep and the wheat, and uh, as opposed to the goats and the tares on the left, right? So I opened it and walked into another room that was also full of smoke, but this room was not totally destroyed. And probably because its inhabitants are on the right, right? And as I kept trying to look through the smoke, I could see metal filing cabinets standing in the room. There were chairs and papers and other stuff thrown all around. I then saw a woman on the floor. And that is in this partially destroyed room. And I believe she's representing the elect of God who are being awakened by these explosions. We feel very very insulated, uh, you know, in our part of the world, but the truth is we're in the hands of God and judgment too. And she was trying to wake up another woman. I believe this is representing the apostate church. She was anxiously and fearfully shaking the woman and talking to her and telling her that she had to wake up, but the woman would not respond at all. Uh, Well, many of God's elect will be awakened by these judgments and will then try to wake others up, but many will still not wake up spiritually even after these things happen. A man probably representing the man-child reformers, came and picked up the woman, representing the elect of God, who will wake up as a result of these judgments, who was trying to wake up her friend, representing the apostate church. He lifted her up off the floor and began leading her towards the direction that I just came from. That's the room that the bride was in. The bride then uh, leads the virgins to the man-child in Psalm 45. I kept saying to myself, I can't believe we made it through this. I can't believe we made it through this. And then I woke up. Before I went to bed the night before this dream, I needed to get my random verses for our morning Zoom prayer meeting, and I really felt led of the Father to ask Him to give me a very pertinent verse. And He gave me Psalm 91, 
5, and we'll read 5 through 11 in context. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flieth by day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. I was wondering if the arrow could mean a nuclear missile exploding or missiles exploding. Uh, The deep state is trying to start a real war, and they have uh, the pestilence prepared, as uh, the Alliance knows. Verse 7 goes on to say, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So God's in control of judgment, and He knows how to take out the wicked. For you have made the Lord your refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For He will give His angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways. So remember, don't get fearful around the plagues, right? Okay, this is Gabe Watson's revelation he got on 10-17-22, and we called it an experience of power. He said, yesterday I was going through a time of what seemed like reflection, and I kind of felt like my life had no purpose, kind of meaningless. I've been waiting so many years, and it seems like nothing is happening. I didn't feel sad or condemned by it, rather just wondering what God's mind was on everything. So I was just questioning what God's purposes were for me in my life and if I was missing something. I was really earnestly seeking God and wondering, what am I doing? Is there something I'm supposed to be doing that I'm missing? I don't want to waste any talents, even though I don't see myself as having any great talents or anything, but I know the Lord has given us some. I want to be able to use them. And before I went to bed, uh, me and my wife prayed to the Lord about these questions. I woke up in the middle of the night and went to lay down on the couch. And as I was laying down on the couch, I don't know if I fell asleep or if I was awake, uh, to be honest. I'm assuming I fell asleep for just a few minutes, and it seemed like a dream, but I could feel everything happening in my body. It was so real. I could hear myself say to myself, You are such a loser. Uh, I felt like it meant that I was not good for anything, meaningless, uh, meaningless life, etc. <clears throat> well, the thought that came to me about this was, we can do nothing without Him, but we can do all things through Him. His power is made perfect through our weakness. And this revelation comes before 
this experience that he is about to share with you here. You know, we do have to not be working in ourselves, in our own power, and God's power is going to come to those who understand that. So, uh, Gabe said, immediately after that was said, this incredible force picked up my entire body. Not even the strongest human on earth would be able to resist this force. My body was powerless, as I had no control over my motor functions. However, my consciousness was still there, and I was completely aware of everything that was going on from an observing point of view. This force was moving me across the ground as if I was a floating object. I then noticed something that the force was moving towards. And as I got closer, I knew that it was a shadow in the shape of a man. As the force brought me directly over the shadow, I shot up into the air like a rocket. The force moved me with such extreme velocity and an incredible amount of G-force. I felt like my body was shaking like an earthquake. Well, this is probably the Lord coming in the man-child with an earthquake as it was when Jesus went into resurrection life, right? As I was going straight up into the air, it seemed like the shadowy figure is what made the force shooting me directly up into the air. I was shaking so excessively that it seemed to be contorting my face as soaring up through the air. I then seemed to come either out of the dream or into an earthly reality. I started to think normally, thinking is something wrong with me or what is happening to me. And uh, the force started to wind my body down and it began to become less intense. It shook me so hard that I could still feel it in my physical body. And as I either woke up or came into complete consciousness, I then started meditating on what had happened. I thought about the shadowy figure. The only thing that kept coming to me was Trump. I have no idea why I felt this way. I might have looked like him. It might have looked like him. I'm not for sure. I don't think about Trump a lot, so it was an unnormal for me to think that way. Well, Trump is typed by Cyrus, who conquers deep state Babylon just when the man-child is anointed over the kingdom by the king. And Cyrus is a shadow of Trump, Cyrus makes it possible for the latter rain man-child to come and release the captives, as in Isaiah 61. So the shadow person could represent both of these entities ruling under God as a verse that he received, which I'm going to share with you. The refuge here will be formed 
and our new provisions uh, to reach the world will come. So he said, uh, I then have a Bible app that I check every morning, and it sends me a verse of the day. I looked at the verse, and it said, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. (laughs) I was amazed that it had the word shadow in uh, the random daily verse. Okay, so now you can see that these entities that are ruling on the earth are under the Almighty shadow, right? Okay, this is was given to Claire Pinar eleven six twenty two. Pretty fresh stuff here. We called it David President's Rule After the Queen. I dreamed Rion and I were in a convoy of luxury vehicles to meet the Queen. This was a queen similar to how Queen Elizabeth looked. And in the dream, I thought to myself, haven't you already died? Well, she did die, and it was a long time before her official death, but you know the show must go on. So, anyway, we were driving our silver van. David Eels was in the convoy with us in his own luxury vehicle. I believe the David man-child reformers with um, they're going to receive uh, riches in order to build the kingdom and will have authority over all the power of the enemy and um, he had a driver I believe this is the Holy Spirit the car was a light champagne or light gold color It was clear that it was a type of changing of the guard. There were no flags flying over the residence. It was surprisingly small for what one would typically think is supposed to be a queen's residence. We arrived at this large circular driveway at the queen's residence and Rion mistakenly parked there instead of moving along. We'd never driven in or through a circular driveway, so it was slightly confusing for us. He reversed and moved the van through the driveway once, and then, once everyone had parked, we were the last to park our vehicle. David was dressed sharply, In a light gray suit, he looked like a president with his hair all slicked back, and he wore a pale blue tie that made his eyes sparkle. I looked at our van, and it had transformed into a camper van. And uh, she puts in parenthesis, our tabernacle. Yeah. Well, it's also ready for the wilderness tribulation. It is a camper van, right? I was a little embarrassed by this camper van outside the Queen's residence, (laughs) as it seemed out of place. But I still dutifully followed David and the others into the building. 
There was a large uh, estate next to the Queen's residence, and a couple that lived there were out on their first floor balcony with black spy glasses or binoculars. I believe that this probably could be what's left of the, the deep state spies. They were watching Rion and I like hawks, and it was uncomfortable to feel their piercing eyes on us, but as we walked into the residence, they could no longer see us, and I felt better. We were first in a holding room where the Queen's attendants were signing uh, us in. We met two black missionaries, and they were very tired. We came to find out that one had been raised on marijuana, so he thought it was normal, and it seemed to have very little effect on him. These men spoke the gospel with such conviction and with no regard for any man-placed authorities like the queen's attendants. The queen came out, and she was so very old. She greeted us all very kindly and told us she'd be going very soon and that she was preparing things for David. The attendants were like restrained but, but rabid dogs, quite forceful, but knew that they couldn't do anything to us. And I believe that these uh, black missionaries were, well, I'll, I'll speak on that in a minute, I guess. We sat at a long dining table with David in the middle and all of us around him. We were feasting in the middle of this change of authority with David as Mr. President. There were grapes on the table, wine, as well as lamb and focaccia bread. In other words, feasting on the blood and bread of the Lamb of God. That's what I saw there. Everything had garlic and salt on it. Garlic is good for the heart, and salt preserves. There were about 40 people at the dining table. The queen wanted all of our details, but she did not receive them. Water started dripping from the ceiling, and they had to move us to a bigger room, as they were scared of being liable for someone's hurt from the water. But David said, it's going to continue to drip and then flood, but you will not be able to stop it. They didn't like that fact. Well, it is the flood of the latter rain, which is deadly to the carnal man, right? I knew the residents would not get damaged by the water because it was a marble floor. The foundation was already refined and very strong. I think the strong foundation here of the rock of Jesus, the word, is already laid. The queen sort of disappeared. Then we were all just waiting for the next command. We turned to these two black African preachers, and I knew David could deliver one from his stronghold of, a, of addiction. 
The other was older and more patient and friendly. He reassured us that the younger one would break free soon. Well, I think this could imply there are many ministers walking in the addiction of the darkness of apostasy. And it is an addiction to them. They can't break free of it. They've got too many motives to keep them there and besides religious spirits. And, uh, but, but these will be set free by the Reformation. Okay. I received by faith at random Ezekiel 39, 28 through 29 for this dream. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God in that I caused them to go into captivity among the nations and have gathered them unto their own land. And I will leave none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them. Well, he has hidden his face from many. Okay. But now he's talking about this awakening, right? For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel. There is the latter rain outpouring, says the Lord. I believe the Davids will come out of the captivity to rule over the political realm in the spirit and lead God's people just as it was with Joseph and Daniel and Zerubbabel and others. I, I say that this, this uh, Mr. President thing is all about ruling in the spirit realm over the principalities and powers and over all the enemies of God. For I give you authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall in any wise hurt you. Right? All right. Well, Father, thank you so much for this revelation. We ask your blessings upon us, and uh, we can see the things that are coming, the shakings that are coming you've shown, and um, we thank you for preserving your people through this all. And, Father, please bless Michael and the brethren um, as their their study starts, and um, pour out your Spirit there in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. God bless you, saints. We'll do this again. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, folks. Good to see you again. Got a nice, sunshiny day out there today. A little chilly, but that's all right. We're coming into some warm weather shortly. Let's go see. Let's talk to the Lord. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to share what you've given us. And I thank you, Lord, for your grace. The grace that uh, you've given us and, and, and for us to show people around us, Lord. And I thank you for this opportunity. To, and Lord, I, I ask that you anoint us to, to give out this word and that it would be a blessing to everybody in Jesus' name. Well, that's what I want to talk about is using God's grace. You know, in our Christian walk, we're learning to come into that place of making Jesus our Lord. Now, there's a lot of people out there that say that they made Jesus Lord at uh, this time or that time, but you know it's not true. We're making Him Lord as we humble ourselves to Him day by day and become disciples or followers of Jesus. And when you make the decisions 
when you make the decisions, you know, he's not the Lord or the head. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ. That means that he's the ruler or he's the head. And, and then it goes on and says, and the head of the woman is the man. But you know, obviously, we're somewhere in between being the Lord ourselves and the Lord being Lord. Because Jesus' complaint was that he didn't have a lodging place to lay his head. In other words, to be the Lord of a body of people. But we're all growing into that headship according to Ephesians 4 and 13. Till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a full-grown man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men in craftiness after the wiles of error. In other words, being led about by different doctrines instead of being led by the Lord as our head. Verse 15, But speaking truth in love, we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, even Christ. We're growing up in the headship of Christ. But in so many ways, we are limited by our understanding. And we can only follow him to the extent that we have been enlightened. So the more we learn to walk by faith, the less we need to be enlightened to follow by faith. You know, you can follow the Lord and not understand the Lord, but some people won't even do that. They want to understand before they obey. But we're learning to walk by faith after the Lord, even when we don't understand faith and how it works. It's blind because you just stand out on God's Word without any natural proof necessarily, and then you see the natural proof. That's how the walk with the Lord is. We're learning how to make Jesus our head and growing up in all things into Him who is the head. And to the extent that we walk according to our fleshly mind and not after the mind of Christ, we're not holding on to the head. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18 says, Let no man rob you of your prize by a voluntary humility and worshiping of the angels, dwelling in the things which he has seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast the head, from whom all the body being supplied and knit together through the joints and bands increasingly with the increase of God. Well, the main point here is that if you are puffed up and you're walking after your fleshly mind and you're not holding fast the head because the head is the mind of Christ, he's our ruler, he's our Lord, and we are his followers. In a way, we'll have to lose our mind. The Bible says in Romans 12 and 2, Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we have to lose our mind 
in order to live like Jesus wants us to live and to be a testimony for him. Now, let's look at Revelations 20 and verse 4, spiritually speaking. There's a lot of meat there and a lot of depth there. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them and I saw the souls of them that had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. You know, John, sitting out there on the island of Patmos, was imprisoned there. Uh, it tells us that in Revelation 1 and verse 9. For the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. The scripture says here, those who rule with Christ on these thrones are the souls of them that have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. The word testimony or witness is martyria in one place. And in another place, it is martyrs. That's where we get the word martyr from. And it just means an evidence given or a witness or a record. Jesus said that we would receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon us and that we would be witnesses. And we've all seen that that's not talking about witnessing necessarily out of your mouth, but it is talking about being a witness or evidence of Jesus Christ in our walk. You remember how the people knew the disciples, even though they were ignorant fishermen? They took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. They were an evidence. They were a witness and a testimony of Jesus. Now, in Revelation 20 and 4, those people who judge on those thrones that were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, I think we all have to be beheaded for the witness and testimony of Jesus. We looked at the spiritual mark and image of the beast. It talks about further down. And we saw that there is a deep parable in Revelation there, more than just the physical. Well, here's a Revelation 2. We have to be beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. In order for us to manifest that testimony to this world, we have to lose our minds and we have to renew our minds with the word, right? Romans 12 and 2. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we bring that to pass, not only in ourselves, but in the people around us? What is it that we can do that can cause somebody else to make Jesus Lord and to make him our head and to learn to follow him whithersoever he goes? Jesus didn't think that that was such an easy thing to do, but we can make it easier for one another and ourselves, right? Remember, we're talking about Jesus having a place to lay his head. You know, if we aren't disciples, we haven't given Jesus a lodging place to lay his head. And we aren't going to follow him whithersoever he goes. And we're going to be saying this, First Lord, let me go out here and do this, okay? And that's putting everything ahead of the Lord and not letting the Lord be Lord. 1 Peter 2 verse 2 says, As newborn babes long for the spiritual milk which is without guile, that ye may grow thereby unto salvation, 
If ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, unto whom coming a living stone, rejected indeed of men, but with God elect precious, with God's elect precious. So here we see, (coughs) excuse me, the Lord Jesus is a living stone, and he has been rejected of men. But with God is elect and precious. So we need to pay attention to the word precious in this chapter. Let's go on to verse 5. Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As priests, our spiritual sacrifice is our body because you're making it obey the Lord, not the old man. Verse 6, because it is contained in Scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Who is that? That's Jesus. Elect precious. And he that believes on him shall not be put to shame. For you, therefore, that believe is the preciousness. But for such as disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, the same was made the head of the corner. First of all, it's the chief cornerstone that is more important than any cornerstone, and it's the head of the corner. A name but one kind of building that fits into that, and that's a pyramid. The Great Pyramid, which Josephus said was built by the sons of Enoch, For some reason, the chief cornerstone is missing from that building. Nobody has ever figured it out, if it had ever been put there or not. And since the Great Pyramid was a great revelation of measurements for the future of mankind from God, if you go in there and look at the measurements, in fact, that word pyramid is a Chaldean word, you're omitting, which means revelation measurement, and it is. You know, they have actually gone back and looked at the standard measurements given in the walls and predicted history. And that was a tremendous revelation given by God to Enoch's sons about the future. It went through the flood, and you know it didn't settle one hundredth of an inch with 144,000 polished stones on the outside of it. And that's a number in scriptures, you know. It has a chief cornerstone that's missing, that the builders rejected, which is a type of Jesus. And it's just fantastic what God did there. It was a complete witness to mankind. And the Bible makes several references to the pyramid. But the main thing I want you to see here was that for those that believe that preciousness, that stone which the builders rejected, is for them. In other words, they have been given the lordship, headship, the chief cornerstone. And for those that disbelieve, he is the stone which the builders rejected. No head, right? Why did the builders reject him? Well, that's talking about Jesus when he was rejected by builders or leaders of Judaism back in his day, the scribes and Pharisees that rejected his lordship and headship because of their unbelief. They rejected him because they preached the law, and Jesus preached grace.
Jesus was against the law to them, what they thought in their minds. They preached the law, and people didn't believe. Jesus preached grace, and those that did believe, believed because they received the grace. How can you believe, except if you believe that God has given you grace or favor? And if you think that God is judging you according to the law, your faith will never get up off the ground, folks. As long as you think that you're not perfect and hadn't pleased God, you ain't going to be able to believe God for anything. You can't really make Jesus Lord as he wants to be unless we receive grace through faith. And if you're condemned because people preach the law because of receiving a legalistic preaching or message, then you can't have faith, grace, or the chief cornerstone, right? He can't be Lord in your life if you're going to be led by the law. In fact, the Bible tells us that if you seek to be justified by the law, you're severed or cut off from Christ in grace. It tells us that in Galatians 5 and 4. So, obviously, if we're going to bring people around us under the headship of Jesus Christ, we have to preach grace in order for them to believe. If we believe God is on our side, we can go confidently before the throne of God. And that's what grace is all about, unmerited favor. If his favor is poured out towards you, you can believe that God wants to do something for you, including anything that's in the gospel, anything that are in the promises. And the problem is, so many times we're thwarted from making Jesus Lord in a certain area, certain area of our life, because we're feeling condemned, because of some kind of a failure we might have had. But if we can receive grace through faith, then Jesus can do through us what God did through him. A lot of times we think that God couldn't use us the way he used Jesus. But how are you going to have the testimony of Jesus, huh? Jesus said in John 20 and 21, As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. He didn't make any particulars about who could lay hands on the sick or cast out demons. All he said was just believe. And he ain't playing favorites, folks. And surely he has a, a job for each of us. But the things that Jesus did... God wants to flow through us to the people around us. The people around us can't even receive it, nor can they have faith to cause the miracle to happen unless we speak that grace into their heart. And we're talking about the fact that you don't see any problem in people around you that wouldn't be solved if Jesus would be Lord of their life. We, you know, you see people around us that are bogged down in difficulties. They're bogged down in sins. And if Jesus would be made Lord in that circumstance, they wouldn't have any problem, right? Yet what we're seeing here is that Jesus can't be made Lord except by one way, and that's by grace through faith. In Zechariah 4, there's another parable that really closely identifies with the parable in 1 Peter 2 about God building this building out of the stone. And who are we that are making Jesus our Lord? 
We're not talking about those that won't make him Lord are not disciples or followers of Jesus because they're led by the law. There's a lot of people out there who say that Jesus is their Lord and their Savior. But they just go on about and do their own thing, just like in Luke 9. They think that there are things that are more important than making Jesus Lord. So he ain't the head of their lives. But we're learning to come into his headship, aren't we? Zechariah 4 and 1, And the angel that talked with me came again, waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have seen, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with this bowl upon the top of it, and its seven lamps thereon. You know, that sounds pretty familiar to the seven lamps that stood for the seven churches. There are seven pipes to each of the lamps which are upon the top thereof. But uh, as you can see, one bowl that feeds these seven lamps is what it's talking about. In verse 3, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. You know, olive oil is, of course, what those lamps back then commonly burned. And the two olive trees signifies what's feeding the church. Verse 4, and I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, that means those who were born of Babylon, and Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation, ended up being the two olive trees. Those two who were high priests and rulers of the people of God when they were building the city, God was liking them to the two olive trees that fed the people with the oil. Verse 6, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. The power of the law was might and power, and the power of grace is God's spirit, because we freely admit that we're not able to fulfill this covenant without the spirit moving through us, flowing through us. The power of the law wasn't that away. And what happened? They all failed. This revelation is about grace because it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, <coughs> thou shalt become a plain. That's talking about the kingdom of God, because all throughout scriptures, mountains symbolizes kingdoms, right? And he shall bring forth the top stone with shoutings of grace, grace unto it. Now, Zerubbabel, that's those that were born from Babylon, is going to bring forth the top stone by shouting to this mountain, shouting and speaking grace, which is going to bring forth the top stone. 
individually and corporately, it is going to be speaking grace that is going to bring forth the top stone, the head, the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus. And that stone is only going to be brought forth by those who come out of Babylon and speak grace to it. Individually and corporately, if we want to make Jesus Lord in somebody else's life, we've got to put faith in the people around us, not condemnation. And if you have faith in God, Jesus is Lord in your life. Now, condemnation was what the builder's problem was because they rejected the stone. They didn't understand Jesus' grace because it was offensive to them. And the only way we're going to bring forth faith in other people is if we give grace to them. And the only way we're going to bring forth grace in people is giving them faith. It is like, you know, it's it's just like a never-ending cycle. It's over and over again. That's what you have to do. And James, he talks about how the tongue can set on fire, the cycle of life. We've got to be able to change other people's cycles from grace to faith and faith to grace instead of the curse. Now, we're still talking about changing our head. We don't want to be our head anymore, right? Because Christ is our head. We don't want people around us to walk after the mind of the flesh, but we want to walk after the mind of the spirit, right? And the only way we're going to be able to do this is by getting people to stop from looking at them themselves and their failures and by looking at the promise. And that builds them up. That causes them to grow and to change that life cycle that they've been in. Ephesians 4 and 20 says, But be, but ye did not so learn Christ, if so be that ye heard him and were taught in him, even as truth is in Jesus, that ye put away as concerning your former manner of life, the old man that waxes corrupt after the lusts of deceit, and that ye be renewed or changed in the spirit of your mind. But on the new man, that after God hath been created in righteousness and holiness of truth, wherefore, putting away falsehood, speak ye truth, each one with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We are a corporate building, folks. 26. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing that is good, that he may have whereof to give to him that hath need. Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth. You hear that? But such as is good for edifying or building up, as the need may be, well, I have to tell you that the, as, need, as the need may be is not in the original. It says of the need because every occasion has a need that it may give grace to them that hear. Now, we can give grace to people who hear us. That's going to empower and build them up in whatever their need is. But corrupt speech is going to cause them to lose their faith in God and cast them down. By overcorrecting them. You know, sin to us is one thing, but God sees it as exceedingly sinful if he looks at it literally.
And of course, we're forgiven in Christ and our sins are overlooked in Christ. You can cause a lot of people to get worse by giving a simple correction. Because sometimes the Lord shows us things about people that's not meant to correct them or show them what is wrong necessarily. A lot of people can't receive correction gracefully. There's a way to do it. And scriptures teaches us how to do it. But you have to be careful, folks. Everything that comes out of our mouth that is not building up the need and doesn't give grace to those who hear is corrupt speech, right? Ephesians 4 and 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God in whom ye were sealed until the day of redemption. Corrupt speech, folks, grieves the Holy Spirit when you don't preach the grace of Jesus Christ and you go ahead and you preach the law. Instead, we sometimes we legalistically cast people in their faith down. Then they don't have any hope. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing be put away from you with all malice. That is one, that's one reason for us to speak corrupt speech is when we have the wrong motive in our hearts. What causes us to correct people a lot? Well, many times we want to correct people when there's any of the things said in verse 31. You're quick to correct and direct his eyes on himself rather than the Lord. Verse 32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving. Uh, that word in the Greek means grace, too. It means favor. Forgiving each other, even as God also in Christ forgave you. In other words, you have to be able to forgive before you correctly deal with somebody around you in order to build them up, not to cast them down and to give grace to them so that they can grow up in Christ, right? you got to put all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing away in order to speak grace and build up the needs in that person. And I know that if you continually look at your problems, your lack and your failures, you're not going to believe that God is having grace toward you. And you can't go boldly before the throne of God to receive the grace that you need. And the reason why God told us to go boldly before the throne, because of the sacrifice, the blood covering of Jesus, we are accepted. And anything that we can do that will make the people around us feel accepted by God and go to that throne of grace and receive that help, we're going to build up that need by speaking grace and bringing the cornerstone to bear on that building and helping them make Jesus their Lord. Colossians 4 and 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace. And the Greek word is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And that just means favor. Seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer each one. Now, grace can be either human or divine. And grace doesn't just come from God. We've got grace on one another because it means favor, right? There are three words in the Bible that come from the same word that are that are close. Forgiveness, which is charisma, grace, which is charis, 
and giving or gift, which is charisma. And they all mean giving unconditional favor to somebody else, whether it's from God or you. We unconditionally give favor favor to people around us. We give grace to them. We forgive them. And we give to them. So we need to let the favor of God show through us, right? Verse 6, season with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. you got to be careful, though. You can't put too much salt in there, can you? Salt will burn if it gets in a wound, but it will also heal it. It's like the Word of God. When you have a problem, it's going to burn, but it's going to heal it. A lot of people have been going through suffering, and the church is about to go through a great deal of suffering as well. But we need to learn how to handle suffering. Because it's one of God's greatest tools for bringing about the righteousness of Christ in us. 1 Peter 2 and 18. Servants, be in subjection to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward or unreasonable. For this, a grace, is acceptable if for conscience toward God a man endureth grief suffering wrongfully. You know, it's okay for God with God for you to endure your griefs and your sufferings, you know. Verse 20, for what glory is it if when you sin and are buffeted for it, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you shall take it patiently, this is acceptable or grace with God. Verse 21, For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He left it all in the hands of his father. And when you're suffering, that's when your lowest instincts come up, especially when you're suffering at the hands of a person. We have to go through suffering because of the lust of our flesh. Suffered, Christ suffered for doing good, and we're supposed to too. 1 Peter 3 and 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed are ye, and fear not their fear, neither be troubled. But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. You know, our first temptation when we suffer at the hands of somebody or circumstances, it's not to make Christ as Lord in our hearts, but it's every other fleshly desire, right? Jesus committed himself to him that judges righteously. When he was suffering, In other words, he wasn't taking mind of vengeance or falling into the flesh. He was leaving it up to God. And he tells us to do the same thing. He says to sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. 1 Peter 4 and 1. For as much then as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm ye yourselves also with the same mind. Do we have a mind like that? No, I can tell you our mind is to run from any kind of suffering in the flesh and to avoid it at all cost. But it's the thing that we need the most. Christians in the United States especially need suffering 
because God wills it and people need to be delivered from their selfish interest and self-centeredness. 1 Peter 4 and 1 says, For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. When your flesh is suffering, it's because it's not getting its way. Uh, when you're not sinning. So we are called to suffer in the flesh. And that's supposed to be our most precious friend. Verse 2. That you no longer should live the rest of your time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. We, we need suffering so we can live the rest of our life free from the bondage of the flesh as a servant of Jesus Christ. How do we know that suffering is from the Lord? Well, when you understand God's purposes in suffering, it makes it a lot easier for you to endure because you see the purpose behind it. You're not so deceived by Satan into wrestling with flesh and blood or anger. Right? 1 Peter 4 and 12 said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial among you which comes upon you to prove you. The problem is we say it's strange. We think that there's something not quite right about suffering. But you know, we need to change our mind. We need to have the mind that is in Christ, right? Expecting that we're going to suffer for the name of Christ. So that his name or nature can be manifested in us to prove, perfect, and purify us, right? First Peter 4 and 12 says, As though a strange thing happened unto you. 13. But insomuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, rejoice, that at the revelation of his glory, also ye may rejoice with exceeding joy. And if you can manage to rejoice in the midst of suffering, it's going to be a lot easier for you, folks. Romans 5 and 3. Let us rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that, <coughs> excuse me, that tribulation works steadfastness or perseverance. 4. And steadfastness, approvedness. That's character. And approvedness, hope. You know, suffering is all about bringing about the revelation and manifestation of the glory of God in us. And it goes on to say in 1 Peter 4 and 14 that if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are ye. And then verse 19. Wherefore, let them also that suffer according to the will of God commit their souls in well-doing unto a faithful creator. Why does it say creator? Well, you're just like the clay in the creator's hands when you do this. It says creator for a purpose because that's how God creates in us the righteousness of Christ. Suffering can be wasted. In the midst of suffering or a trial, you need to commit your soul in well-doing, in doing what's right in the midst of that trial. That suffering is coming upon you for a reason, and it's to prove you and to bring about the righteousness of Christ in you. So don't waste that suffering because you don't want to have to go through it again. Make it useful by committing your soul in well-doing in the midst of it. First Peter 5 and 8. Be sober. Be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Whom withstand steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are accomplished in your brethren who are in the world. And the God of all grace, who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ, after that ye have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect, establish, and strengthen you. God's promises is through suffering, and he'll perfect you through it. And if you look on suffering as God's method of perfecting you, it makes it a lot easier to take, and it also makes you not so willing to run out and go away from it. And the thing that we need most is this thing that we want to run away from or we want to avoid at all costs. There's a lot of there's some people out there that have a suffering doctrine that they don't believe there is an end to the suffering at the expense of redemption. And if you have a mind to please the Lord in the midst of suffering, if you have a mind to live godly, first of all, you're going to suffer. Second Timothy 3 and 12. All that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And those who desire to live godly are going to suffer. And persecution is only one area of that suffering. But you can't avoid it, folks. Because suffering is God's method of deliverance and of setting us free. Any of you ever seen a henpecked husband out there that's been that away for a lot of years? You ever noticed how easy and, and docile that person can be? It's what they had, what they've had to put up with over the years. It could have been a nagging wife for all those years that made them that way. It was suffering that made them that way. Why do you think the Lord says in Matthew 5 and 39, resist not him that is evil? And if you do that, you'll suffer internally and externally. First of all, you'll suffer internally because when you resist not him that is evil, every lust of your flesh is going to rise up inside of you. You're going to even suffer on the outside. You know, I've had people in the past that rebuked me because I wouldn't do something to somebody that they thought I should have paid back. I've had employees working for me that wanted me to do something to so-and-so, and they were angry with me and ended up falling out with me, not wanting to talk to me anymore. So you're going to suffer inside and out when you resist not him that is evil. God designed his commandments and principles so they will cause you to suffer in the flesh. If you obey God's word and sanctify in your heart Christ is Lord in the midst of that suffering, you're going to bear the pain of that in your flesh. The Christian church has made a big thing out of martyrdom, and rightly so, because martyrdom is a big thing. What do you think is greater? To have a sudden end of your life of standing up for Jesus or to go through a slow process of death because you are continually standing up for Jesus? Like 
bearing with some obnoxious, unthankful children faithfully for a number of years. And that brings a slow death of suffering. How about an abusive husband you had to put up with for a lot of years, but you stayed faithful in the Lord in that? That suffering brings about a death in you. It can be a a, a nagging husband or wife. It can be obnoxious neighbors or continual circumstances that keep coming against you. When you get angry and frustrated, folks, that's your opportunity right there because suffering has come in order to work Christ in you to bring the glory of God. And that's what it's all about and for. People out there thinking that families were made to bring pleasure. But if you stop and think about it, families were made to bring tribulation. You know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, people let down their hair when they're in their family more so than with other people. Your real you comes out more that way. And that's the place where you should be suffering by denying yourself, by giving up your self-centeredness. God designed the family as uh, like a microcosm of this world. Everything you can find out there, you can find in your family. The same kind of tribulation, except, you know, the people in your family know you really well. And that makes it even more possible. God has designed everything, even sickness and healing. But we don't have to take redemption at the expense of suffering. We don't have to take suffering at the expense of redemption because they work hand in hand. You might have faith that God has healed you at Calvary. Between here and when you get healed, there's going to be some suffering. And during that suffering, you'll have a chance to deny or to accept Christ and his ways. You can patiently take suffering rejoicing like the scripture tells you, or you can fail in it all the time believing you are healed. And if you believe that you are healed, the healing is going to come. Now what about the poor brother or sister who don't believe they are healed and who have suffered years and years in sickness? Even though they don't believe God's healed them, it works peaceable fruit in their lives because suffering does a lot more than bring you to healing. It delivers you from all the lusts of the flesh. When a person gets sick, don't just think that it's so he can have faith to be called righteous in order to get his healing. There's a lot of things involved there. You know yourself that you can believe God for healing, and it might happen in days, it might happen in hours, it might happen immediately, or it might happen in years. But God still expects you to confess what the Word says while you're suffering. And it's hard to do, but He expects you to do that. And don't think that the person who suffered and never expected to be healed, don't think that they are going to receive fruit from that suffering. Because they are. If they go through that faithfully and learn patience, God's going to bless them in that. 
There are all kinds of suffering because there are all kinds of flesh that needs to be brought forth. Don't waste your suffering that you go through on self-pity, animosity, anger, or especially rebellion. You know, the first rebellion that you have when you go through suffering is that you just want to run from it. Well, that's true. Jesus didn't do that when Jesus was going to the cross. He said, Father, if it's your will, then take this cup away. And he wasn't going to take it away or run from it. And finally, he came to the revelation that it wasn't God's will to take the cup or suffering away. And he went through it patiently. He didn't stand up for himself. First Peter 2.23, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously and suffered patiently, right? That's suffering right there that's not wasted. Suffering that's wasted is if you get off in the flesh and in the midst of it because it's just going to come back around again. Jesus didn't waste his suffering. Every bit of it was useful. And that's what we want for all of the suffering. Our suffering is to be useful and have an effect on our lives. So we need to stop and we need to think and have this mind in us, which is in Christ Jesus, when you're suffering in the flesh and ceasing from sin. First John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Folks, you get a cleansing either way if you're humble enough to confess your sin. He is faithful enough to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So you're going to get your cleansing and have faith in that. You're going to get it. You can't waste suffering in your depression and self-pity. And if you are rejoicing, you can't do both at the same time. That's why he commands you to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And if you realize what suffering is for, then you can give thanks because it's for your perfecting. Jesus became perfect through the things that he suffered, right? 1 John 3 and 16. Hereby know we love, that's agape, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is your old life. The lust of the flesh, anger, rebellion. That's what you're laying down. And that's agape love when you do that. Agape is the opposite of flesh life. For instance, in 1 John 4 and 7, the Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everybody who agapes is born of God and knows God. And if you don't agape, you don't know God. And then 4 and 8. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. Agape is God, folks. Then 1 John 5 and 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Agape is God, and it is obeying the word. And that's God. That is agape love right there. Agape is different the other two common types of love, eros, that's sexual love, and philo, that's friendship kind of love. <clears throat> and that 
uh, uh, that's contingent upon other people's activities towards you. But agape is not. It is only contingent upon the life of Christ on the inside of you. You can agape someone who doesn't like you. Agape is not emotion. Emotion is both sexual and friendship love. And that's real unstable. So don't worry about feeling emotional about loving God. He has commanded you to agape him, which is being obedient to the word. Jesus said in John 14 and 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he also said in John 14, 23, if a man love me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. For agape, that's what he said, right? Second John 1 and 6, and this is love that we should walk after his commandments. Folks, that's agape, obeying the word of God. Agape is the only love you learn. You have to learn how to obey God. And that's also according to 1 John 3 and 16, denying yourself. Agape is bringing your old man to the cross, laying down your life for other people and giving up your self-centeredness. Then you understand now why Peter couldn't give what the Lord wanted him to give in John 21 16 when the Lord said to Peter, Lovest thou me? And what the Lord was saying, Do you agape me, Peter? That's because Peter had just come through the biggest failure in his life. Or at least he thought so because he denied the Lord three times, remember? He failed completely to obey, to humble himself to what was right. And right after that failure that Peter had, the Lord asked him in John 21 and 15, Lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love. Filio, meaning friendship, thee. Peter knew that he couldn't confess to being obedient, to loving the Lord enough to be obedient to what was right. Because he had just failed the Lord. He had to overcome his failure in the Lord, in himself. He had lost his self-confidence. Don't you know that if uh, before he did that, he would have said, Yeah, Lord, I'll be right there with you. I agape you. In fact, he did. He told the Lord, I'll follow you even unto death. In Matthew 26 and 35. In a way, he did say that. He believed that he could obey of himself. But after that, he lost all of his self-confidence. And he wasn't even willing. The Lord asked him if he agaped him. But Peter said, I phileo you. And it grieved Peter. Why do you think Peter was so grieved? He was feeling condemnation by the fact that he knew he couldn't and hadn't been able to agape the Lord. Peter was learning through suffering to agape. We become perfect, obeying the word, learning to agape through suffering. Agape comes from the inner nature of the spiritual man, and it is conquering the carnal man. It's given up our life, according to 1 John 3.16. Suffering brings about this agape love, which is the nature and way of God's kingdom. If that is God, and what we're looking for is godliness, then we can't help but be as an end result agape, right? In fact, you'll know that love is nothing less than obedience. It ain't the mushy 
goosebump feelings. It's just obedience. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, he described to you agape, which is more important than speaking in tongues, knowledge, faith. In fact, he said, if you had these things, but you didn't have love, you were nothing. So the end result of everything that God wants to do in you is agape. The three abide faith over love. What did he say? First Corinthians thirteen thirteen. And the greatest of these is love. The thing that's going to get you into God's kingdom is love. But he said you can make the greatest sacrifice. You can give your good, goods to feed the poor, your body to be burned. But if you don't have love, there is no profit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and 4 that love suffers long. How do you get long-suffering? You go, you get long-suffering by going through a lot of suffering with people and circumstances. Otherwise, you can't get it. 1 Corinthians 13 and 4, love envieth not. Because self is the opposite of agape, right? Love vaunteth not itself. It's not self-centered and it's not egotistical. Is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not provoked. You know how not to get provoked? You can get hardened to being provoked by having an opportunity over and over again to be provoked. Because you suffered with it so long that you give it up. You overcome by degrees. This failure isn't bad as the last failure in overcoming is that way often because you didn't fail God quite as you did last time. So it's a progressive thing. Suffering can last for years if you don't jump out of that fire. And if you aren't like Ephraim, a cake unturned. By this repetitive thing that comes against you, you can become hardened to your bad reaction to it. All you got to do is desire to please the Lord. And it's not always like you want overnight, but eventually, if you desire to please the Lord in your suffering, you'll be, you will, because suffering has that kind of work in us. And that's why we're not going to escape it. It's going to come, folks. First Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Doth not behave itself unseemly, Seeketh not its own, is not provoked, taketh not account of evil, rejoices not in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love is obeying the word of God. It ain't the mushy feelings. Agape is just obeying. And if you want emotional feelings toward God, then agape him because your emotions are out of control. They're more subject to the flesh than they are to the spirit. You just keep on following the Lord and the Lord will bring them to serve him. But it doesn't happen at the first. It happens in the end. Obey first and let the emotions follow the spirit. Verse 7, believes all things. And I guess... It's not being willing to think the worst of somebody, right? 
You can always try to think that somebody has a good motive for what they're doing. It's easier to think that than to always think the worst because, of course, you're going to deal falsely with people you always think the worst of. You aren't going to be able to deal with them correctly. You aren't going to be able to turn the other cheek. Paul says it's better to just think on these things, whatsoever things that are lovely and of a good report. Because you can deal with people like that if you're meditating on what is evil. And you're going to fail every time in your reaction to who they are. So God wants us to agape him. He wants us to obey him so that the love of Christ will flow through us to the people around us. Well, I'm out of time, folks. God bless you, and we'll see you again next week, if God's willing. For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels. Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. Though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus. I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night, what will be my guiding light? Shining rays of red and white Jesus, I trust in you Sacred heart in you I find Mercy seated for all time I am yours and you are mine Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea Though the rivers rise, I still believe For your mercy stands and your word is true Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea Though the rivers rise, I still believe For your mercy stands and your word is true Oh Jesus Jesus, I trust in